there's nothing quite like it is there. Welcome to SpecsCast. My name is Phil, and joining me today is TJ. Hi. And this week, we're bringing you an inside look at the second annual Spaceport America Cup from Las Cruces, New Mexico. SpecsCast is brought to you by RIT Space Exploration, also known as SPECS, a student-faculty research group at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we delve into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You can learn more about SPECS and SpecsCast at our website, specs.rit.edu. So TJ, in the middle of June, you and me left for Las Cruces, New Mexico for the Spaceport America Cup. Spaceport America Cup is a competition where over 120 university teams came from all over the world together in the desert and put their engineering skills to the test by launching rockets. Yeah, Spaceport America Cup was probably one of the most fun weeks I've ever had. We went as media Um, loosely affiliated with the RIT team, which was RIT Launch Initiative and RIT Space Exploration, working together to build a rocket and then a CubeSat-sized payload on top of that rocket and launch it to 10,000 feet out in the New Mexico desert. And so we kind of came in as, well, we want to go. Like, seeing rockets take off is fun. Uh, RIT students will be there. There's people we know and we've worked with. So let's go and and watch some rockets and celebrate the work that they've been putting in for the whole year. But once we got there and we saw that it wasn't just, you know, our team uh, that had passion, had done awesome work. Every single team there had put in incredible amounts of work and had just built crazy awesome rockets, lots of new mechanisms and inventions to increase performance or improve accuracy or even just, you know, something boring better than it's ever been done before uh, and there's a whole rewards category just for that and so I think we both came out really inspired and excited by the hard work all those teams did. Definitely we went and I was expecting just to be covering the RIT team but we had a recorder out we did some field recording with a, a new microphone that TJ bought and talked to as many teams as we could and there were a ton of really inspirational stories and great engineering and uh through this episode, we'll be featuring some of those interviews, audio clips, and speak about this competition. So this was the second annual Spaceport America Cup. So Spaceport America is the first private commercial spaceport uh, in the world. It was originally um, started construction in 2006, and it's really unique space because it's a public-private partnership with the state and the commercial entity. So Spaceport America is right next to White Sands Missile Test Range, which has a lot of history with NASA and the military doing sounding rocket test launches. And Spaceport America's airspace is zero to infinity, which means they have the ground to space and a bunch of wide open area. And they opened it to this competition so that students can launch their rockets and not have to really worry about where they end up, which is great because no matter where you are in the world or in the country, it's really hard to find a place where you can just launch a rocket 10,000, 30,000, or 100,000 feet in the air and not have to worry about it coming down on top of somebody's house, right? Oh, yeah. And, you know, I think it's really cool to see White Sands uh, kind of rekindle the sounding rocket uh, work because in the very earliest days of American rocketry, 
when the U.S. Army brought back V-2 rockets from, from Nazi Germany, they were originally tested at White Sands. And so before Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, before Kennedy Space Center, White Sands was where that first testing was done. And so it's kind of a, an interesting point to see, you know, the very first commercial spaceport happened within the same uh, region and using that same airspace. During the competition, we met up with Karen Barker, a director at Spaceport America, to get her perspective on the competition. Hi, yeah, I'm Karen Barker, and I'm the director for strategic solutions at the Spaceport here in uh, New Mexico. Um, and we have our international rocket engineering competition. We have over 1,500 students here. We've got judges from all over, very well-qualified and talented people, both from the student standpoint and from the uh, judges' standpoint. We have a lot of volunteers from the community and from afar that are also helping us, and we really appreciate all the hard work that everybody at the spaceport has put into this because a lot of our people um, are involved with the activities here. So this is a, a... wonderful situation, a wonderful time to be involved with rockets because so much is going on in the rocket community, you know. We have, um, I mean, we're just getting ready to catch a wave. Do you surf? Okay. If you surf, you know that when you feel that uplift, you know there's a swell coming. You want to ride that wave. And so we're, we're catching that uplift right now. Um, there is just so much opportunity here for the Spaceport America um, launch site and uh, we do vertical and horizontal launches from ground to unlimited. We're 19,000 acres of pristine land that can be used. Of course, um, uh, this kind of uh, activity is not polluting like your gas and oil uh, activities are. So, And not only that, you're going to see all of these students someplace important in the future because many of these are return students, some are new, but they've all got a passion for what they're doing when it comes to rocket launch. And uh, new concepts, new innovations, I mean, they're, think, they're having to think through this. Um, they are getting an education in itself just by prepping to come. So uh, we're really grateful that we're able to be involved with this right now. Yeah, so let's talk about the, the competition itself. IREC, or now the Spaceport America Cup, is put on by... ESRA, which is an acronym for the Experimental Sounding Rocket Association, which is all volunteer, and we'll get to that a little bit later. So they partnered with Spaceport America to put on this competition that took place between June 19th all the way to June 23rd. The first day on the 19th is set aside for teams to gather in a convention center. Um, There's a keynote speaker and some employers are there, Uh, but the main point is for students to set up their rockets, put them on display with a, uh, a poster, stand in front of the rockets, and talk about it. You know, I've been to a few uh, professional conferences. Usually when you go into a room with all those booths set up, it's, it's people who have a very specific thing to show you. And they're either trying to sell it to you, or they're trying to, well, they're usually trying to sell it to you. <laughs> but from a, a student engineering competition, uh, at that kind of conference, the whole team is there, or the whole launch team is there from that school. And that not only... Do they have a rocket to show you? They will tell you exactly everything you want to know about the rocket, the motor, how different bits were made, how the avionics work, because the team is there to present their best work. Uh, and they're all very, very proud of what they've, they've worked on. 
extremely happy uh, because, you know, while this is the first day of the competition, it's really the kind of end point for their year-long journey building this rocket. And thousands and thousands of man hours have gone into it from these teams. We took our recorder out on the floor to hear more about some of these cool projects. So uh, my name is uh, Nicholas Flesher, um, and I'm with the Buckeye Space Launch Initiative, a project team within the Ohio State University College of Engineering there. And we, uh, we have three rockets here today. We have a 30,000-foot competition rocket, a 10,000-foot competition rocket, both student research and design, as well as a uh, 100,000 exhibition launch. That's a two-stage rocket, actually, in particular. Our team overall is actually quite large. We have 120 active members, which is a lot to... Uh, a lot to handle um, and for us having a couple rockets has really given us the ability to turn around and say you know everyone's really worked on hands-on some of the other things we have done have been getting into a little bit more of additive manufacturing our lab is located at the uh, Center for Manufacturing Design Excellence they have a uh, several um, laser and uh, electron beam sintering printers and they were donated by GE so we've been able to kind of print certain components of the rocket we've done some more simple things we've actually printed our rail buttons uh, so this is a the rail button here uh, has to stand an inch away from the rocket because it needs to be mounted on the bottom half so the rail button is what this connects what slides along yep. the rail to connect the rocket yep. to the rail and so it'll actually it'll slide that way um, okay. So it has a teardrop-shaped rail button. Its, its shape is conducive. To give a little bit of spring, a little give, this should help with rail whip. So if the, way, the rail is flexing while it's coming off, this should help kind of get rid of some of that, some of those forces that may kick the back end of the rocket off. Yeah, so my name is Colum Ashlin, and uh, yeah, Colorado State University. I'm the uh, head of propulsion. And um, yeah, this year we developed a liquid, um, we developed a liquid rocket engine. Um, we have nitrous oxide as our oxidizer and ethanol as our fuel. And it's a concentric tube design, so the ethanol tube is inside of the nitrous. Um, so the nitrous pressure actually pressurizes the ethanol and drives the flow. One, one benefit of this is that we only have one pressure, pressure vessel, and so we can have a very thin ethanol tube. The uh, combustion chamber here has a... Um, PVC and then HTPB liner, HTPB hydroxyl terminated polybutadiene. The, um, the only reason we have the HTPB in there is to have um, passive heat transfer. The combustion chamber is over 4,000 Fahrenheit during combustion, which is, I mean, enough to melt hell. I mean, yeah. So um, the HTPB, HTPB ablates away, um, taking the hot temperature with it. Um, leaving a cooler temperature at the at the bottom, so um, we've never melted through a combustion chamber. Uh, so I'm Chris Sawyer from CSU. I worked on the control systems. Uh, so the avionics system that we're flying here at IREC uh, is really just data collection to bring forward to next year to fly our controls module. Uh, we have our control modules here. It's finished. It's done. Makes cool noises. Uh, that is us raising and lowering the air braking flaps. Uh, because we are flying with a liquid motor, it's just inherently less precise than any of the solid motors, just because there's more moving components, it's more experimental, and we've built the thing, so it's, there's more unknowns. So generally the plan uh, earlier this year was to slightly over-design the motor, just overshoot the apogee a little bit, uh, and then to take into account that imprecision just inherent to the system, we built an air brake module. So. It's got uh, gyroscope, altimeter, magnetometer, and a couple other things. Looking at what the rocket, where it is, where it's going, where it's probably going to go, and then if it determines that it's going to overshoot the apogee, it opens up the flaps to slow it down, and if everything works, 
just precisely tip that 10,000 feet and come back. Last important thing with the air brake module, uh, we put a lot of work into the fail-safe mechanism. Uh, my name is Nate Kiesling. I'm the controls lead for uh, CSU rocketry team. This um, board in particular is the uh, fail-safe board. It also does power conditioning and signal conditioning for uh, the motor controller and uh, all of the sensors on board. But it also contains an extremely robust and uh, very simple fail-safe system. So the fail-safe system can handle a loss of power. It can handle brownouts from the main, uh, the main avionics stack. It can handle um, even a, a detectable mechanical failure. Uh, we have something called a monostable multivibrator in there, or a one-shot. And the one-shot is waiting to hear from the Arduino um, every, uh, what, half a second? And if it doesn't hear back from the Arduino for more than half a second, cuts it off, triggers a fail-safe. It can close the flaps under load in less than a second. So we're sitting here with this live and ready to go. The flaps are open, it's in the middle of flight, and uh, something goes wrong, such as this ribbon cable coming undone. And it's closed. Uh, my name is Ricardo Herrera. I am the project lead for North Seattle College, North Seattle Community College, <laughs> competing down here at IREC 2018. Uh, our rocket is named Pele. It's 92 and a quarter inches long. It'll go up to 10,000 feet. It's about 53 pounds at launch and should hit about Mach 0.8. Your rocket looks much different than some of the other rockets uh, at the competition today. Can you describe what it, it looks like to our listeners here? And, uh, what led you to some of these design decisions? Well, I think what you're actually getting at is that down on the tail end of our rocket, we have a ring, what's called a ring fin. Uh, it's a little bit unusual. It, what it allows us to do is to reduce the actual side profile of, of the fins themselves by nearly half. By doing that, we reduce something that's called weather caulking, and that happens when you're leaving the launch rail. A crosswind can cause the bottom end of the rocket to actually kick out. So the less surface area you have down there, the less prone you are to that. Now, the other cool thing about our ring fin is that it's adjustable. It's an actually, it's a removable part, and it's non-structural. So it's actually made out of PVC, and then it's been shaped. But by increasing and shrinking the length of it, we can adjust where our center of pressure is. And really, in rocketry, two of the most important things is the center of gravity and the center of pressure in their relationship to each other. Center of gravity is real easy to move around. You just add more weight to the front of the rocket. Center of pressure, essentially, you usually have to redesign a whole entire new rocket. But with our ring fin, we can actually move that around. Uh, our payload is an autonomously guided payload. It was designed by us. It's a U1 CubeSat shape, so it means that it's 10 centimeters cube. It uh, runs an Arduino Mega in there, and two servos move around a parafoil uh, parachute and yeah it deploys at 10,000 feet black powder charges shoot it out and then it opens up the parachute and it should guide down to a fixed GPS location you know personally there's always a risk of failure there's even more times you launch a rocket the more the risk never goes away and people tend to get complacent so luckily we have that working for us that we're not going to be complacent but also is that we might have lost the rocket and so I'd rather come down here with a rocket and lose it here than to just not show up. These students are incredibly knowledgeable and one of the things that uh, IREC and Ezra and the judges try to impress upon these teams is, you know, this is not a group of specialists working on their own personal projects and getting slammed together. Like this should be a team of rocket engineers uh, who are focusing on different systems, but they all should really know the rocket, know how it works, know why they designed it the way they designed it. 
Um, and it was just really impressive to kind of get that knowledge and direct feedback from these kids. We caught up with George Whitesides, who's the CEO of Virgin Galactic and the Spaceship Company, and he gave some opening remarks at the beginning of this conference day that really set the tone for the whole event. So at IREC, obviously, it's a huge showcase of student engineering talent. How is Virgin Galactic taking advantage of that opportunity? Well, you can see, I think we have the biggest booth here now uh, this, this, uh, this time. And, you know, I came and visited last year, and I was like, this is the most exciting gathering of aerospace students that I've ever seen. Because people are doing practical hardware. They're working in teams. They're coming from all over the planet. I mean, that's like, that's the ideal thing. And I just hope that we can drive attention to it so that more and more teams can participate from all over the country, all over the world. And I love that it's being hosted here in New Mexico at Spaceport America, where we're going to be based as well. So it's, it's just an awesome event. What are the ways that the competition itself structures itself so that all these teams from all these different backgrounds can build a successful rocket is through the standard operating procedures or SOP. So uh, this was RIT's first time at this competition, for example. A few teams that we spoke to have been competing for eight years in a row. And the way you can make sure there's you know, a common knowledge base to start from and to make sure that all these rockets are safe to fly is um, by outlining all the the rules and minimum requirements basically that the rocket has to meet yeah this the standard operating procedure is a key element for the competition and you know some student teams uh when they get that 90 page technical document kind of balk at it because that's you know for them that's a lot of of instructions right for the the table of contents is 20 pages exactly (laughs) you know for you know for people who are for engineers who you know get a piece of IKEA furniture and they rip open the box and start screwing things together, sitting through that many pages of instructions is a little challenging. But uh, Ezra thinks it's very, very important to have that because it gives a common starting ground for every team, right? They put in some restrictions, some guidelines uh, to kind of guide teams on the right path because they, you know, they want to be open to brand new teams, brand new school, brand new students, but they also want to provide a challenge for teams from schools who have been there for half a decade or more. And there's always a balancing act on their end of, well, how strict do we make the guidelines? Uh, Does that force everyone to a specific design or how broad do we make it to encourage innovation while maintaining safety? Out on the launch range, we asked Ezra's president, Matt Ellingold, about the standard operating procedure. My name is Matthew Ellingold. I'm the president of the Experimental Sounding Rocketry Association, Ezra, and we facilitate the Spaceport America Cup Intercollegiate Rocket Engineering Competition. This competition has standard operating procedures and rules, and um, there are rules to rocketry. About 90 pages of documentation. I wrote them. Right. So... (laughs) Uh, teams come here and they all come with different backgrounds, different designs, um, and make different engineering decisions. So when judges go around um, and evaluate the safety of a rocket, how can you tell when something is you know, fixable and maybe they should fix it? When something is critical, you need to fix this or you can't fly. And when a team comes here and their mm-hmm. critical design, like a fin or something, is not safe to fly, how do you make those judgment calls? Can you walk us through the, uh, the, your thinking? 
So the process starts with a flight safety review that happens with some very experienced folks, some very experienced volunteers on our team. You, saw, you might have seen some of that happening at the conference on Tuesday is they go around and they, they, give, they give the rocket the works. It's, take, it's taken apart, can't be together for that because they need to see all the parts, look everything over, make sure the fins are, are firmly affixed to the airframe, look at the trajectory that's proposed for it so that all the structures as designed should survive that because something that's perfectly fine for a Mach 0.8 flight to 10,000 feet may not be adequate for, as you just saw, something that was trying to go Mach 4 plus. So they, they, give the, they give the rocket the once-over. They put their findings on, on a flight safety review form. If everything's good, that's great. They sign it. If there are issues, they mark them on there, and they don't sign it. And they'll come back when the students, have, when the students believe they've resolved those issues and look to see that they actually have. A lot of times they do, sometimes they don't, or sometimes they can't. You talked about fins. A classic example is if a fin's not firmly affixed, and depending on how it's designed mechanically or what it'll take to fix it, it just may not be feasible to make those make the necessary repairs within the time frame and the resources available to competition. One of the reasons we're thrilled to be here in pr close proximity to Las Cruces and Truth or Consequences as opposed to when we were out in Green River, is there's a tremendous amount of resources within an hour's drive of here. There are Home Depots, Lowe's. There are better odds. That it's for what the students don't bring with them, although they should be, pre they should be prepared for a lot more than they often actually are, uh, they, there are better odds that they can get the things they need. What are some of the common safety issues that you tend to see during conference day that for new teams thinking of competing next year or people that didn't make it uh, to this event uh, that they should consider and double, triple check before they arrive? Reading the documentation. Everyone says they read the documentation. They, they say they do. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to feel old now and complain about <laughs> reading comprehension skills. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I would say a lot of the common things we see are fairly simple stuff. And a lot of it would be considered relatively basic systems engineering best practices. And what I mean by that is considering the full life cycle concept of operations of the system. That, and the way, the way that was described to me when I was learning is a day in the life of the product, a day in the life of the rocket all right, I show up at the range, what has to happen? Mm -hmm. I need to assemble it. What's the environment like that I'm assembling it in? Well, it's 107 degrees outside. What's that going to do to my fit tolerances? There's sand. Is that going to get into gaps? There is a unpredictable flight time. So maybe I want to have a way to keep the rocket cold, turn, turn everything off and only have have outside access to power so that stuff's not in there bleeding energy. The, these considerations for you, you know what the system's about to go through and has to endure to have, have a successful mission, plan for that and mitigate those things either by design implementation, making, making changes to how you actually built it, those engineering decisions you made, or mitigate it by process, and, how you do it. And um, those things are uh, things that are either learned through experience, like coming here, finding all those things and knowing that for themselves, or through mentorship, be it upperclassmen or professors. 
Absolutely. Are there things you can do uh, as a facilitator and of this competition um, to drive those things home and make sure students are as prepared as possible if they don't have mentors and it's their first time coming? We do, and that and that's the purpose of, of the of the design test and evaluation guide. Is it's very very basic principles of amateur high power rocketry. We include by incorporation the range, the range safety procedures of the National Association of Rocketry and the Triple Rocketry Association into that document, plus a bit more. And a lot of that's just meant to help help the students avoid basic pitfalls like having two flight computers, making sure all connections are secure, understanding that the rocket's going to vibrate on its way up. Uh, safety is a huge factor uh, for the competition, and it's actually the main focus for conference day. As fun as it is to have everyone's rockets on display, uh, the, the pre-competition safety check is a huge part. And so uh, there's a various judging panel, and you'll have safety judges, and they will go and they have a checklist of something about 60 different items for a rocket that they need to verify that, again, are in that 90-page instruction booklet, but they need to go to the rocket and they need to make sure that the team followed all those, those guidelines and that it's safe to fly because you don't want a rocket blowing up during assembly or during the launch. As fun as it looks on camera to see a rocket disassemble uh, and fires and explosions, when you have a competition where people are within a mile of the launch site, ideally you want it to go up perfectly straight and come back perfectly down and be as safe as possible. You have these teams that have fully completed rockets, you know, 10, 15 feet tall, and they're expecting to launch within the next 24 hours. Uh, the safety judge will, will tell them, put it on the table, let me take it pretty much entirely apart, let me inspect how you're connecting the motor to the rocket body, how your fins are attached, uh, do you have double redundancy in your parachute deployment charges? And very thoroughly goes through the whole rocket because they're not looking for a minimally safe rocket that might be able to get up in the air and back down safely. They want to guarantee that on the key points that uh, it's not going as far as they can tell and they double check the work of students that it will perform successfully and safely. And so that's a the, actually the main point of conference day. And the safety judges uh, inspect, they give either a go, which means that team can go first in the day uh, on the next day for launch. There's a pro probationary or provisionary pass, which is you have a few very minor safety violations, but they should be easily fixable. And if you fix them and show that it's fixed, you're safe to go. Or there is a basically a disqualifier, or a major safety violation where something in the rocket is inherently flawed and Ezra is not going to let you fly. And even if the team is going to fly, uh, that's still a year's worth of work they've been able to get there. And they've got that direct feedback from experts where they now know what that critical safety flaw was. Uh, but the whole safety process is completely unscored. And the reason for that is they want teams to be as upfront and honest about the capabilities of their system as possible and not worry about scoring so that the safety judges can have a friction-free environment to inspect the rockets. Their concern is that if there's a points value where, oh, if we find a safety violation, you lose 50 points, then a team might try to hide that 
and then you potentially let uh, safety violations through. So it's designed to be a very open process. The safety guys are, are not there to ruin your day. They're there to give you some pointers, make sure everything's safe, and ideally they, want, they would like everyone to pass on conference day and everyone to be ready first thing on launch, the first launch day. Right. And this is an opportunity to learn. This whole event is an opportunity to learn. They want every team to be able to go out to the launch rail and send their rocket up. So by doing it on, you know, a once over on conference day, it gives students some extra time to maybe go to the hardware store, touch a few things up so that they don't find out about these, you know, violations, safety violations when they're ready to go and the rockets all put together. On the list of things you wouldn't expect to need at a rocketry competition, hardware stores within driving distance. Before IREC was at Spaceport America, uh, it was in Green River, Utah, and their launch site out there didn't have easy access to something like a Home Depot or a Lowe's or even like an Ace Hardware. And that makes going out and, you know, if you have a safety violation or if you're building your rocket and something breaks, getting spare parts, very, very challenging. And so uh, the organizers are very happy that Las Cruces, which is about an hour and a half away from the launch site, has a Lowe's and other hardware stores. But even uh, the small town, Truth or Consequence, which is much closer, it's about 30 minutes from the launch site, has a hardware store that can get those spare parts. The underlying tone here is that the organizers want students to launch, the students want to want to be able to launch and they want to make it as easy as possible and streamlined as possible to let them do that as long as it remains safe. You know, safe for the students assembling the vehicles, safe for spectators, uh, and safe for the facility in, in general. So there's an event called Spaceport America Cup, which takes place at Spaceport America. Uh, but IREC is actually just one of many competitions and IREC itself has different categories. So there's the Intercollegiate Rocket Engineering Competition, which is all about uh, building a rocket. And there's lots of points for the actual engineering process that goes into it, the documentation, the testing. With launch, all of launch operations only being about half the points possible to get. Uh, then there is the SDL Payload Challenge, which is not rocketry focused. It's for... Uh, encouraging teams to build useful payloads that go on top of these rockets. Uh, each rocket needs a ballast payload uh, so that the rocket actually has to be substantial in weight and theoretically useful. Adding a functional payload makes it actually useful. And payloads are all judged uh, against themselves in their own separate category. And rocket teams that have a payload uh, will get those points added to their IREC score as well. Let's hear from one of the judges for the Space Dynamics Lab Payload Challenge. My name is Paul Stewart, and I'm from the Space Dynamics Lab up in Logan, Utah, and we're part of a team of four people. We take care of the payloads, so we have issued the Payload Challenge. We've been doing this for about five years, and it's a monetary award to any of the teams uh, to compete, and there's a first, second, and third prize for that and then honorable mention. So we see some really cool science payloads. Uh, we see gliders, kind of like the one you're seeing there, the scissor wing one. And that's the challenge side. And then the other part of this is the official weigh-in. So we also take care of the official weigh-in for the payloads. They have to weigh a minimum of eight pounds, six ounces to qualify for no uh, deductions. And if they're light, they get a 150 point deduction as part of the overall challenge, uh, the, the overall rocket 
competition. This is a rocket competition. It's all about safety. It's about the propulsion. Payload is kind of secondary to a lot of these teams. Mm -hmm. But over the years, we've seen some really exciting science payloads. And we've got an astrobiologist from Canada who's put together a payload that's pretty remarkable. You obviously get a lot of diverse payloads going up on these rockets. How do you develop uh, a method of judging them all fairly when they're all so different? You bet. So there's there's actual rules and regulations about how they're supposed to fit. And we the, the form factor, they get bonus points for the form factor of a 3U CubeSat. And that's the system that you see there. It's 10 centimeters cubed, 30 centimeters long. So that is a certain amount of points. Um, for science payloads, there's a whole judging side of that and they get a certain amount of points for what the science mission is and obviously after they launch and recover they come back and they give us the data the data analysis and so there's a whole process for doing that with certain points for a successful launch and successful science or whether the glider deployed so some of these are clearly engineering payloads some we have got a mars rover and if it lands safely and then crawls along the ground x number of feet uh, they score that as a successful mission. So the teams actually set what their goals are for their mission. And if they complete their mission, they get full score for that. With the rocketry, we have separate categories based on off the shelf, completely student built. Uh, do you see as the number of competitors in the payload challenge increases, uh, different categories being created? So the payload challenge, I, I see just about all, every payload is built in a lab. Uh, very few off the shelf payloads. In fact, I can't recall one. Um, so most of the payloads that we see were built in a laboratory at the school uh, specific for their size of rocket and needs. So we judge them. It, it's an objective, as objective as we can be, to look at their engineering, the way it was built, the construction quality, the materials, the mission that they're trying to achieve. Um, and we've had some that actually do journal article research. They study up on a specific issue of whatever they want to test. So there's some teams that really take it on quite seriously. They really look at the science that's been done previously out at lots of other laboratories and organizations. Some of these programs, uh, especially universities, um, have more resources available to them, be it labs or money. Or You, you mentioned people that put in the science and research. Is that the main criteria? And it's not the main criteria. I would say they come in two categories when we look at the payload challenge. There's a science category and there's an engineering category. Okay, yeah. And they compete evenly on both sides. And there are some engineering projects, and that would be an example, that would be a glider or a rover, that clearly can blow your socks off. Yeah. It's not actual science, but it's a demonstration of really brilliant engineering. So they compete on the same playing field. Um, and the science side, you know, it all depends on the teams. I've seen some of the smaller teams come out with a physicist from their school and do some really deep thinking about what they're actually looking at. And that's because this physicist isn't really interested in rocketeering. They're interested in, in, their, in their research back at their school. And large or small, I would say it's pretty well balanced. I've seen some of the smaller liberal arts school put together payloads that are just as good as some of the high-tech engineering schools. Yeah. With things like IREC, with these student teams pushing for payloads, do you see the, uh, the utility and frequency of these payloads kind of rising up again? Well, sounding rockets, like you said, we started doing a lot of them back in the 1950s and 60s, and my laboratory has a very long history of doing sounding rockets launches primarily out of Alaska, out of a place called Poker Flats. Um, and nowadays, we do a lot more sensing from ground-based and from space-based sensors. So there's still a need to do sounding rocket experiments, but 
it's probably at a level where there's a limited number of schools and organizations out there that are doing that. So this is good experience, not just for that, but also for much larger systems. Now, uh, the last part of the event really uh, is the demonstration missions. So there's been a p always that push of higher, faster, uh, and sometimes bigger. And they want to enable that because they have such a unique facility launched from in that airspace. And so teams uh, can submit rockets that go higher than 30,000 feet, or they're designed to go much higher than 30,000 feet. Uh, and they'll be provided a launch pad that's much farther away for safety reasons. And they'll generally you know, target for 100,000 or beyond uh, because there is a general push to break the barrier of space uh, at 100 kilometers with sound student design sounding rockets. Um, so the actual event is all rocketry focused, the conference day, the launches, and the, all these different sub-competitions uh, and lots of places for teams to focus on and excel. And even out of those comp uh, competition categories, there's a whole subset of engineering focused awards uh, that teams can compete for and win. And then even beyond that, informal awards that judges walking around when they see uh, impressive engineering, impressive safety and procedures, or even good teamwork, they can hand out on-the-spot awards. And so uh, this whole competition is actually very diverse. Yeah, for sure. So we've spoken a lot about the, the mechanics of the competition and how it's working in terms of telling up the scores and doing the safety checks and stuff. Uh, but we actually got to go out into the desert with the teams as they're putting the rockets together and watch them take off. This is TJ checking in on the inline microphone. We are in the sun. It is ridiculously hot. Uh, a little less windy, which means it's more hot. Uh, my feet are beginning to uh, toast, as the uh, the kids say today. Uh, <laughs> the kids say. Yeah, kids are all talking about that avocado toast and you know, all that crazy stuff. Um, but it's uh, it's been pretty good. We've. Is this your first time being in a rocket competition? Uh, this is my first time seeing high-powered rocketry. Yeah, me so, too. Yes. So uh, the way this was set up is we drove an hour on basically a half-paved road. Um, there's still some road work going on. There were cows in, out, out on the range, right? And then there's a basically a building in the middle of nowhere. And we, we turned the car in, and there's a bunch of tents set up, one for spectators, like uh parents and local people to come and watch these rockets take off um, some food trucks and stuff and then there's um, what some of the organizers called tent city and each team had their own uh, what do you call it it's just a, a tent right they all have these kind of pop-ups and you know uh, organizers called a tent city uh, I'd think of it as a, a rocket bazaar where think of an open-air market where instead of selling trinkets and goods you have partially assembled rocket parts yeah that's exactly what it was with fins and nose cones and rocket motors and parachutes strewn about radios electronics and lots and lots of students baking in the sun yeah and and not only were these students working on their own stuff but they also got the chance to walk around and take a look at everybody else's work and in some cases uh, share knowledge or borrow some parts yeah, you know, it is a competition, but a huge part of it is that inter-team communication where, you know, some teams might have innovative fin designs or innovative deployment methods, or they might have uh, fancy uh, ground, so uh, ground tracking station software and equipment. And you can kind of go around and, and see what other teams like 
you know, each team's given the same problem to solve within their category. And each team comes up with their own solution. And this is the opportunity to go and compare their solution to others and to learn. Because, you know, sometimes when you're presented a, a challenge, you do your kind of trade space analysis and you come up with, you know, three solutions and you choose one of them and then you go and build it. Uh, but sometimes a solution might come out of left field. You're like, wow, like we didn't even consider that in like our brainstorming phase. That's, that's crazy. Like, well, let's consider that next time. So it's definitely a place of exchange of ideas. And Phil, you mentioned, you know, borrowing parts and, and helping hands. Teamwork is a hugely important part of the competition within your own team, but there's also awards giving out to teams that go above and beyond to help other people with, uh, you know, sportsmanship. And so you'll see people borrowing tools or helping them lift rockets or pack parachutes. Uh, and like those kind of moments where, you know, you're gonna meet and interact with fellow people passionate about space and rocket engineering, which I think is uh, some of the biggest value that the students got out of it. So we're out there on launch day, and let's walk through the steps of what happens once teams have their parts on site and are getting ready to go send it up into the air. Yeah, so after conference day, it's the official beginning of launch operations, and uh, it's about an hour and a half drive from Las Cruces, and for day one, I believe launches started, the airspace opened at 1 p.m. However, that does not mean people rolled up with their trailers at 12. Uh, setting up a rocket is a very uh, in-depth process, even for the most well-prepared and well-designed rockets. And so uh, you'll have teams up there at 6 a.m. is when the gates open. So, you know, at 6 a.m. you have trailers coming in, people in vans, uh, and kind of swarming the area, setting up that tent city we talked about. And there's a few things that have to happen. One is you have these rockets anywhere from seven feet to 15 feet long. Uh, those are very rarely trans road transported as single units. And so they're all built out of separate pieces. Uh, and that's partially for transport reasons and also the fact that they have to separate for recovery. And so those individual parts have to be unpacked they have to be inspected, charges, black powder charges, other uh, electronics have to be inserted and tested and armed, and the whole rocket has to be assembled. And so we mentioned during conference day that the safety inspector goes and basically fully disassembles the rocket to inspect for, for safety violations. Now that rocket has to be completely assembled and a final flight safety check has to occur. And so that's checking, you know, another checklist of, of items to make sure that, you know, you took all these separate parts and you put them together correctly one last time. And that coupled with uh, their safety pass from the first day, uh, then makes that team ready to fly. And so those teams form a queue, uh, starting from the first to be ready um, and adding on as, as teams pass their safety checks. And that gets us to the beginning of flight ops. So uh, with the site, there are three main launching areas. There is the solids pad uh, for solid rocket motors. There is the hybrid and liquid uh, rocket pad that has support for tanking liquids, uh, and that's in a separate area. And then much farther away from the tent city and spectator area is the experimental uh, rocket launch site where they do high altitude launches or higher altitude launches. 
but again, these are not single pads, right? When you, you think of a launch site and you think of, you know, Kennedy Space Center, you think of one big concrete mountain out in the middle of nowhere. Well, A, these rockets don't require that much infrastructure, and B, you have 100 plus teams uh, who are there can compete. And during IRA 2018, 94 rockets were launched. And you can't do that one by one safely. Uh, and so they have to parallelize that process. And so there's actually multiple rockets, uh, rocket launch points within each kind of launch site. Um, so obviously the solids pad gets the most work because most teams either buy solids or build their own solid motors. Uh, and so that has the highest throughput. As you mentioned, there are a bunch of different sites where the teams set up their rockets. And at each site, there's a launch rail. Um, and if you've ever done very small scale hobby rocketry in your life, you know there's that single post and it has the loops that guides the rocket straight up until it has enough speed for the fins to do their job and keep the rocket stable. Um, well, it's like that, except on a much bigger scale. Here's a perspective from Ezra's vice president and the Spaceport America Cups launch director. Uh, my name is Dustin Kohler. I am the vice president for the Experimental Sounding Rocket Association. And on events like this, I am the launch director. Although I have a rock star team underneath me that does most of the work and I just kind of get them what they need and cover for them if needed. And uh, they, they, they're the real magic. So you've so. been really busy this week, right? Uh, yes, very busy, very busy. How's the event been this year? Uh, phenomenal. We uh, broke a record yesterday. We got 44 rockets off the rails in one day. Uh, just to give you a, a comparison to last year, Last year, Thursday was the first full launch day, and we launched 16 total rockets in one full day from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Wow. And uh, yesterday we did 44. So we are over halfway done with launching the rockets this year and in less than half the time. How do you know when to say, okay, the teams that are ready, go? It's, it's a ready. balance. Uh, we'll have teams checking in and getting ready to launch, and we'll try to get as many of the rails full. But once we start sending the first team out, we try to make sure that, that as soon as that first rocket leaves, we try to make sure that it can be off the ground in about an hour. A lot of times we slide and get about an hour and a half, and it's that delicate balance of how long can we really make them wait and be fair and get more rockets out. So we try to line them up. And yesterday we were going pretty good. We're, every time we opened the range, we had enough rockets to fill almost, fill almost every rail. And that's, that's a good pace. That's how we can get all these rockets launched on time. Um, it's only when we have a lot of teams that aren't prepared that we start losing rails, and every time we don't launch with the one, every time we launch with an empty rail, that's potentially one rocket we're not launching. That's happening, you know, about 4,000 feet away from Mission Control, and the way that um, those teams and people out there doing the launch operations can communicate with everybody else how, what status um, their operations are in, and basically the danger, you know, how close are you to lighting something off, um, is through flags. So these different colored flags, green, yellow, and red, um, to say how imminent a rocket launch is. We actually got to speak with the mission control announcer who would speak into a microphone all day, or all week rather, and communicate uh, the status of all these flights to the crowd and to the other teams. My name is Lowell Hart. I'm from Fresno, California. I am a founding member of Tripoli Central California High Power Rocket Club and uh, also a member of Aeropack, which is the rocket club that flies out of uh, Black Rock Desert, Nevada. I'm here because I do a what we call launch control officer in 
high power rocketry, hobby rocketry. The idea is that uh, range safety, range safety officer takes care of the uh, actual flying of the rockets. I'm announcing the uh, launches and pushing buttons. Out here we've added uh, quite a few things. The uh, flag system, red flag, yellow flag, green flag is based on the uh, military shooting range and also at the, they developed a version of it for the White Sands Missile Range, the original Army uh, Missile Agency uh, testing where they, where they had to develop a system for keeping safe when you didn't know where things were going. Green flag is regular operations and prep. Yellow flag, you can pull people off of the range, but no more onto the range, say, and you're anticipating red flag. Red flag is the final. Uh, we are going to fly. We are in, in uh, we don't like to say unsafe situation, but in keeping with safety, we're uh, restricting people's access. It also means uh, everybody needs to be, have a heads up, pay attention, and uh, when we launch, pays attention to the launch and get, helps keep themselves safe too. And up here in front of you, uh, can you describe this awesome looking device? This is a uh, Wilson FX wireless launch controller. It's a, uh, an item manufactured for the high power rocketry hobby. It operates on 900 megahertz frequency. It has uh, ind individual pad boxes. Uh, and from here I can arm the rocket launch pads I can check their continuity, meaning that their igniters are hooked up correctly, and I can launch them from here. It's a very good unit. It has uh, freed us from having to have a wire going from here to the launcher. Uh, here at Spaceport America Cup, we have extended the distances for safety. From the hobby rockets, we fly a lot closer because we're flying commercially developed motors that are a known quantity. Out here we have a lot of student research and de design motors that we don't necessarily know how well they're going to work. So by increasing the distance we made it safer and by using the wireless we don't spend a fortune on wires. And so um, I've heard you calling teams to come up here to the launch control tower. Um, so when, when you call a student up here, uh, what are they doing? Uh, they are a representative of the college or university. We just call them a button pusher, mm -hmm. but it is, uh, in this case, it is a legal uh, situation too. Um, I have to break off. Sure. An update, we are keeping the hybrids at red because they are continuing to load oxidizer. We are green flag on the solids because we are sending out teams with their rockets to load on the solid racks. We will be continuing to do traffic to and from the Y and the solids until receiving word from range safety to shut down the range and shut down the traffic. In the meantime, hybrids are continuing to be at red flag. We are going to continue loading solids and we are going to continue to allow limited traffic on and off the range. Using the button pusher is a legal concept. Uh, doing the hobby, it's generally I push the button when I'm running the range. Sometimes the little kids come up and want to press the button. Uh, we let the adults do, but most of them don't. 
high power rocketry, they're generally out waiting for their rockets, so they have to go chase it. Here it's a legal designation because when the student presses the button, they assume the liability for the flight. Uh, we are fully insured, there is a whole system out here, but uh, if I were pushing the button, I would be liable for the flight. And we don't want that. We haven't had any problems with it, but it's something we're going to keep at. So what are the differences between flying with the hobby and flying with this? Also, you just heard one of the other dis dis differences, lots and lots of two-way radio traffic. Usually that's a very minor thing in the hobby. Out here, it's running the entire range. The distances keep us from even doing hand signals. And uh, like now, the situation we're in right now, where we're loading one and uh, doing the oxidizer on the other, the two spots are far enough apart, they would be, uh, it's possible to function in doing both of them and in a safe manner, Do, uh, again, with the extended distances we use at this level. And then one of the team members stays behind and there's a launch control box. You, I mean, you think of a big red button that you push and the rocket launches. That's pretty much what happens. A rocket is touched off. Everybody basically has to come out from under the tent that, where they're working uh, for safety reasons and watch the rocket go up, which is a sight to see. <laughs> you see the rocket light up bright red or orange or in one case, there's a big black smoke, trail of smoke going off for the rocket. And then the sound hits you. Three. Two, one. There it goes. But with student built rockets, sometimes things don't go according to plan. Three, two, one. Oh, wow. Should we like move? <laughs> so we just saw University of Minnesota experimental uh, experimental composite motor. Uh, their vehicle exploded, uh, probably about five five thousand feet. Uh, there is a a small payload. Small parafail, parachute, parafoil, and uh, a main chute at altitude. Yeah, so the rocket was going for 30,000 feet. It's one of the longer burns we've seen toward the end of it. Looks like it got a little wobbly, and the uh, whole fuselage came apart. After the ignition sequence, there's lots of things that happen in a very small amount of time. So one of the key elements for launching these rockets that is not readily apparent when you see these pictures is the launch rail. And so these are un completely unguided rockets. Adding guidance, whether it's roll control or pitch and yaw, uh, rapidly enters the realm of missile technology, which is much, mo uh, much more carefully regulated. And so for these amateur rockets, they're all unguided. However, there are ways to engineer and plan to have a relatively guided flight uh, to make sure that your rocket stays within that relatively close area. And the key component of that is the launch rail. So this is a structural element, kind of like a launch tower, that basically holds the rocket upright during launch. And all these rockets have clips, uh, basically little metal pieces that fit into a slot on that launch rail. And so when the command to ignite the motor 
uh, is sent, that motor lights, and that propels the rocket along that launch rail. And engineering these launch rails is actually really, really difficult because you need something that is relatively lightweight because the teams themselves have to carry it out there, set it up in a reasonable amount of time, and then attach the rocket to it. Uh, but it also needs to be able to not wobble because uh, these rockets are angled slightly off of vertical so that they go away from the spectator's sight. Uh, but any wobble of that rail while you're launching can dramatically alter that angle. Well, plus flex. So like these rockets are very powerful and they're only held on by one side so the, the rail can actually flex. And uh, when the rocket starts to leave, it bends, it flexes back and um, it's called a rail whip because that's what it's doing. Exactly. So, you know, engineering a system that minimizes that is critical to how accurate you are because if you're the more off of vertical you are, the less altitude you have. And when you plug in those into your simulations, where with a certain motor at a certain angle and all the environmental conditions, if you're one degree off or even half a degree off, that's a huge uh, change in distance. We saw this in action out on the range while we were watching a launch with one of the RIT engineers. Uh, my name is Darling Castillo. Everybody calls me Ozzy because it's easier to say. I'm pretty much the uh, treasurer for the team. I'm also the aer one of the aerodynamic engineers for the team. Oh. It wasn't going fast enough up the rails, so it cocked towards the wind. Either that or it was overstable. Overstable is like, so the stability, for the order to be stable, you have to have a stability margin of 1.5, meaning that your center of pressure and your center of gravity have to be 1.5. So one body diameter plus half of that. Because um, two calipers of stability means it's two body diameters. So if you rack at six inches, that means that in order for you to be stable, your center of pressure and center of gravity have to be 12 inches apart. Uh, if it's overstable, usually that means that the stability is probably higher than three. You don't want it to be higher than three because that means that when you go off the rails, if it's really windy, you're going to cock towards the wind. So you're going to go in the wrong direction. Another thing is, if you're, you can have a stable rocket, but if it's not launching off the rails fast enough, and there's wind, it doesn't have enough momentum to, to resist. So it'll just diverge towards the wind too. So. It's a lot of things to think about. Once the rocket launches, it's moving at a very low speed. Uh, and the main source of stability is the fins. And so you have to be moving at a high speed for those fins to actually stabilize your rocket. And so that makes that very first few fractions of a second critical to how the whole flight goes. Because if your fins are, are aligned miscorrectly, the rails misaligned correctly, uh, you can have a rocket that comes off the launch pad not very stable. Uh, it can go completely the wrong direction downrange, or heads at too steep an angle, doesn't get the right altitude, or worse, you have a structural failure uh, when the whole thing breaks. Right. So the, again, these rockets are unguided. They're only accelerating when the rocket motor is burning. They burn until there's no fuel left. And then they coast for a little bit until they hit apogee, which is the top, very top of the flight path. And that's where you transition from going up to fall back down again. Yeah, and so uh, hitting that apogee target is the you know, main goal of the competition. When we say the 10,000 foot category or the 30,000 foot category, that is measuring the apogee or the highest point that the rocket achieved uh, during flight. Um, as a little side note, uh, while those categories uh, have cleanly limited 
uh, altitudes. It's actually the team's simulation of what altitude their rocket's going to get that is their target uh, that they're actually judged against. So they'll submit, say, uh, 10,500 feet and then uh, as their simulation uh, altitude. And when they launch it, uh, they'll get the altimeters back and then they'll measure that apogee to what they actually put down for the simulation and that difference is their score. So you can have teams that you know, don't hit 10,000 feet, but they're right on the dot of the simulation or overshoot um, anywhere between 20% either direction to count as an accurate launch. Most rockets basically coast to Apogee and they have a, a trigger in their altimeters to see when you start descending. Uh, but some teams do try to become a little bit more advanced. Uh, when we said no active guidance, uh, teams try to uh, kind of guide Apogee using air brakes. It was a very popular feature that we saw that week where um, you have sensors measuring the acceleration that the rocket motor gave you and then as the, the rocket is coasting to Apogee, it can project using basic ballistic physics equations uh, the expected Apogee. And if there's an overshoot, they can actually deploy air brakes that increase drag and will lower that Apogee and try to get as close to their target out value as possible. And so uh, that's kind of adding some automation and uh, a little bit more uh, finesse to it. So instead of just trying to really uh, nail the simulation and hope your rocket performs exactly as simulated, they have some active control during flight that lets them get a little bit closer. Okay, so that's, that's the first half of the flight. Um, after Apogee, I consider that to be the second half of the flight. This part of the flight is still judged, but for different reasons. So when the rocket starts falling, the electronics detect that it's falling or whatever, and it lights electric matches or e-matches to set off um, black powder charges that basically shoot off the nose cone um, and expose a drogue chute or a smaller parachute. And the reason why they do that is because when the main parachute goes off, um, which has much more surface area and it slows the rocket much more, the stresses involved can be very, very high. So the drogue chute slows it down enough so it's safe to open the main um, and then it falls down on the main to the to the ground yeah there's a lot that happens in a very short amount of time and that drogue shoot uh, helps slow it down but it also makes sure that it's a controlled object so that drogue shoot is not going to slow it down enough so that when it lands it doesn't break into a dozen pieces um, but when you're spectating these launches you see the rocket go up and you look for that, try to look for that puff of smoke of the pieces separating, but once you see that color of the drogue chute, that's when you know, okay, the rocket is somewhat under control, and uh, there's not a lot of surface area for the wind to carry it very, very far downrange, which is uh, the reason it's undersized, uh, but that means it's relatively controlled and it's gonna land uh, within a relatively close area. And then, uh, those those main shoots that deploy. We actually talked to a team that used a uh, instead of having a drogue and a main shoot, they actually had a reefed say a reefed parachute. And uh, what's your name? My name is Lou. So I'm representing the EPFL rocket team. We're coming from Switzerland, and we already launched today. Uh, we tried the air brakes on our rockets, and those worked, and we recovered the structure intact. Now uh, we're still looking for a payload, but uh, yeah, that's life. But the flight was really smooth and we were quite happy about it. I think uh, that every team, even if it explodes, uh, are still happy to, to be here just 
because you want to learn and uh, you want also to be part of uh, a bigger a bigger endeavor actually did you guys have the reefed parachute yes yes we did have also the reef parachute yeah. okay so uh, I'm not the one who really designed it so I, I cannot go full technical on it but okay. uh, the idea is that uh, we wanted here to have one less parachute in our rocket because uh, the, the usual goes you have one drogue one main and tada that's it and but still we wanted also to eject our payload at apogee so we had to count about three parachutes that would have added a lot of bulk so what we did is that we developed this rift parachute where what happens is that we are changing the geometry of the parachute and uh, by uh, by using a central line uh, when it's in rift mode um, the parachute is still folded then at a certain height we are activating uh, line cutters who cut this central line and the parachute canopy deploys fully and uh, so basically that's it for bigger rockets it's more useful uh, to use this kind of uh, parachute because you can lower the strain on the structure but on our rocket it wasn't really uh, what we wanted and also this is not what uh, really uh, was happening so we uh, we did it uh, for uh, a packing purpose actually to to get one uh, to use one less parachute a big issue uh, that we saw was parachutes that were attached with a shock cord to the rocket body, uh, but either the drogue not deploying or the shock cord not being properly rated or the attachment mechanism not being structurally sound, deploying the main chute. And when that main chute catches air and deploys, there's a huge amount of force at a very particular moment. And that stress can snap the shock cord, it can break off the mechanism. There are specific rules on on how that shock cord is attached to the rocket to prevent that. Because if that main parachute rips off, you now have anywhere from five to 10 feet of metal or plexiglass rocket with a spent rocket motor following, falling very, very fast. And uh, you know, while it's fun to watch rocket launches from relatively close, uh, when you see a rocket disappear into the sky and then you don't see that little colored parachute, and then it's, oh, it's coming down somewhere. Not many people can see it, if at all. And you hope that it's far enough downrange not to land right in the middle of uh, the, air, the spectator area. Is that coming over our area? I'm not sure. I, I lost it. That was... No event? Heads up. Oh, it's hauling. Well, yeah, oh, wow. Maybe, maybe the main will deploy. Heads up! Watch out. Ballistic! Oh, that was hard. Did it hit? Yeah, it's a long Where'd it land? Where'd it land? It went straight down over there. Wow. So, the last part of the flight is recovery. So the, the rocket comes down and hits the ground and the rest of the rockets that are set up on the rails are launched off and then all the teams that just launched get to go out into the desert with some safety equipment, some lots of water um, and some radios and follow the last GPS ping that their rocket sent out to go find it. Um, so actually bringing the rocket back and ideally in great condition 
is an, the last part that is judged. Yeah, recovery is a really big part of the competition. And, you know, we, we talk about reusable rockets um, for orbital payloads, but for sounding rockets, uh, you know, they've been recovering them and reusing them for, for decades. Um, because, you know, if you have a proper Drogan main parachute, you can, because they're relatively small, you can land them relatively intact. Uh, and so uh, Ezra and the judges specifically want to make teams think about, well, how, like, it doesn't just matter about how it goes up, but, like, how does it come down, right? And that's why they have double redundant altimeters for parachute deployment. They care so much about how those parachutes are attached. And so for scoring, uh, they actually, you know, obviously they get points for recovering the rocket, bringing it back, but also if the rocket's in not perfect condition, but no major components have been damaged. So no fin's been broken off, no smashed nose cone. You know, if a rocket lawn darts and the whole front half has been completely destroyed, but they recover it, they get uh, some points. Uh, but anyways, uh, reco the recovery aspect is, you know, uh, just another part of the engineering process, right? It's not just enough to build a system that achieves a very narrow goal of, go up without exploding. It is, can you go up accurately, uh, hit your target, deploy your recovery hardware, and then go out and find it. One of the Ezra judges specialized in judging the recovered rockets. Uh, my name is Randy Marek. I'm responsible for recording their altitude uh, information for their flight and for reviewing their rocket to make certain it has uh, minimal or no damage. Well, the first part of the uh, operational rules, flight rules, is that the rocket has to return with no damage on it, only cosmetic stuff, okay? So we, we inspect the fins. All the things that are sticking out can be broken. Uh, if it makes a hard landing, it can break a body, it can crack a body tube, uh, uh, break a nose comb, break a fin loose, and those are all unfortunate events, so... It happens to us in the amateur world. That's part of our certification specification. So we basically use the triple E type rules for uh, judging our teams. One of the teams uh, we saw walking back to their tent um, seems to have lawn darted into the ground. Maybe their parachute didn't deploy, and it was all scrunched up and heavily damaged, but they recovered it. Yes. Um, is it is it important for teams to recover their rockets, even if they weren't completely successful? Yes, because they need to learn from them. There's a lot of lessons learned about what worked and what did not work. And in engineering, we learn mostly from what did not work. So that, there's a lot of information there to help them. Unfortunately, the altimeters were destroyed, so they had no information on altitude, plus the rocket was excessively damaged. So that kind of causes their, some grief on the competition. Uh, so you, we saw you giving some advice to the RIT students about different nods and different securing mechanisms for uh, teams that have gone through this experience, but also people thinking about starting new teams. What are some uh, the what are some pieces of advice that you would give them that are kind of something they they should learn out here? Well, they should learn before here so that they're successful here. Shock cords should be about twice the length of the rocket for, for both the drove and the main. Uh, the sewn loops are better than knots because every time you tie a knot, it reduces the strength of the shock cord, whereas a sewn knot is engineered not to do that. So it gives you a higher advantage. You, you spend money to put a 
7,000 pound strength knot, uh, shock cord in there, you don't want to lose it by putting a knot in there that cuts it in half. It may be the difference between a successful landing and not. What are, can you describe uh, some of the more common uh, failures or damages that you might see? Broken fins, fins in. Some of the teams have, tr- have only mounted the fins to the surface and they did it, and some of them have mounted them even through the, through the fin, but the epoxy was ineffective, so they didn't roughen up the surface. They applied epoxy over paint, so the epoxy goes from being something that can help that will secure the, the fin to the airframe to one that has, that's limited by the strength of the paint bond to the fiberglass, and so they've just uh, destroyed their structural integrity. And it's not easily spotted until you come back without fins. Now, the actual recovery process for for teams is pretty arduous. So we're in the New Mexico desert. It's about 105 degrees. Sometimes there's high wind. Sometimes it's still air. uh, And you have to go out. And thinking of how to recover the payload is actually a scored category. right? You have a a bare bare minimum tracker, uh, a GPS tracker that will give you a last known coordinate if that equipment works correctly, if you have uh, radio, if you're able to receive that radio signal, uh, and that's your starting point. And it's up to you to go out there and recover. Uh, now, uh, Ezra has put in a lot of improvements into how teams actually go about recovery um, because they want to make sure teams and the actual participants are as safe as possible, not just from falling rockets from the sky, but also just the environment because it's so harsh. And so um, Ezra provided basically recovery backpacks to teams. And so these are basically kind of like a camelback, except packed all with high tech. And so they have a radio for direct communication back to base camp. There's a dedicated uh, tent of recovery personnel that are checking in every 15 minutes to get um, their status, whether you know they're dehydrated or they're tired or they're like what's what's their their health status listening to the, the sound of their voice to make sure a team's not panicking or exhausted uh, but they also have uh, APRS trackers so that's a GPS combined with a radio that sends a location packet over a somewhat distributed network of repeaters based on ham radio and that allows Uh, the organizers to actually track each team as they move about the desert. So they know exactly where teams are, they're checking on on their water status and whether they've been injured or uh, encountered some desert animals. Um, And so the teams are are very, very safe. Also, you have the flag systems, they know when to look out to the launch pad. Um, And because they have that location, they can, uh, organizers can help those teams stay stay safe. Yeah, and this recovery is an adventure in itself. Okay, so like these teams, they go out and they're all equipped and ready to go and they go off toward their their last known coordinates. Right. Um, But I mean, there are mesquite bushes with thorns that are like three inches thick and can pierce a car tire. There are uh, rattlesnakes. Uh, There are also like jackrabbits and stuff. And there's that beating sun overhead. So just going for that hike is pretty exciting. Um, Sometimes the teams go out and they get their rockets straight away, come right back. Perfect. Done. Other times, the rocket landed way far away and they have to go hiking for a long time. Some of the teams we spoke to actually stumbled across other teams' rockets when they were looking for their own uh, so they could catch a break that way. Um, And 
the RIT team, for example, they had a deployed payload, so they had two things to look for. And that payload was a 3U CubeSat size, so it's smaller than a shoebox. And they spent seven hours total walking around looking for it, and they never found it. So um, that recovery is my favorite part of this competition uh, from, like, if I could be a participant, that's the part that would excite me the most. But yeah, it's super cool um, to see teams walking back with a rocket over their shoulders, covered in dust, uh, a few scrapes and stuff from on the, the fins or on the nose cone. Oh, it's, it's just so, so cool. Yeah. And like when you recover that rocket and you bring it back to camp, that's pretty much the like penultimate moment for that team. Um, there was one of my favorite moments of the week uh, was the team from Brazil where ITA going out, they recovered their rocket uh, after a few hours and they came back and uh, the whole team that hadn't gone out for recovery was uh, just hanging on the tent and the first person sees them walking up with their rocket and yells out <laughs> that they're there and suddenly you have 20 people running across the desert in 105 degree heat running to them and, and just cheering and yelling and, and holding that rocket because, you know, that's kind of like their their trophy, right? They spent so much time uh, and effort into that and to see it launch and then recover uh, is so, so impactful to them. Um, and that, you know, completely disregards scoring and, you know, whether they met all of their scientific objectives, like, you know, they, they built that from scratch and put it up into the sky and then brought it back mostly in one piece. And that really illustrates one thing to me um, that honestly, I didn't expect going in. Um, and that's, you know, how, how much fun it would be for these students to come and they learned so much. I, that's something we heard from pretty much every single team is they learned so much and had so much fun. One team uh, from Switzerland came and they launched the rockets on the first day of launching. There were four days to launch rockets and they launched theirs on the first day, but they were there all week. And toward the end of the week, they even started melting some Swiss cheese on a grill, um, which is a lot of fun. Uh, but they kept coming back day after day to talk to the other teams, enjoy the competition as an event. You know, we spoke to some other uh, personnel that were there that were actually sponsoring the event. So the Spaceport America Cup, their primary sponsors were Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, and a few more. And we got to speak with a recruiter from Virgin Orbit. Um, she was super excited to be there as well. They had music going and stuff. Hi, my name is Christy and I work for Virgin Orbit. And how's your day been so far? So far, so good. This is awesome. It's a little dusty, it's a little warm, but I'm totally excited. Can you describe to us where we're standing next to? We got loud music, we got air misters. So there's loud music, air misters. I've seen some um, ice cream sandwiches. You know, it really reminds me. Flavor. Uh, we've got Otter Pops, <laughs> but this reminds me of like Coachella, but rocket rocket scientist style. Like, I love that. It's a little dusty. It's like the desert, but everybody's here to have fun and, you know, hang out and launch some rockets. Have you been to a, a, a uh, space board, like seen a launch before? I have not seen a launch before. This is my first year coming out here, but it's yeah. super exciting. And yeah. I actually, like, I recruit rocket uh, scientists, so this is why I'm out here. How, do you think there's a lot of value in recruiters coming to an event and not just talking to students in an uh, in an interview setting? 
Yeah, so absolutely. Coming to um, an event like this is miles better than just showing up at universities and standing at a booth because this is like this is their Christmas. This is coming out here, seeing them in action, watching them get their rockets together, seeing them, you know, everything that they've worked for, like get ready to shoot it off. So 100%, I'm going back to my company and telling them like if there's one event that we can sponsor, it's it's uh, Spaceport America Cup. Yeah, wonderful. Can you? kind of described this morning uh, it's been getting progressively hotter and hotter uh, what's the daylight been for you I know I'm gonna I'm like the day started for me I was in a cold hotel room I'm very <laughs> spoiled no we came out we came out in Range Rovers I know I'm like the worst person to talk to but no I will say um, it has been getting really hot um, the sun's just beating down we're sweating thankfully we've got you know some water some otter pops but it's brutal it's brilliant out here it's brutal it's hot but it's yeah. still fun I have a question uh, as a recruiter. Are there certain things uh, that you would tell to the student competitors uh, for maybe future competitions coming here? Um, like from your perspective, what are the things that they should really be focusing on or valuing in this competition? Honestly, I think being a part of a rocket club and putting that on their resume is the best thing you can do because you can be really smart, 4.0 GPA, but as we all know, not all engineers have great social skills. So coming out to events like this where you can go and meet people and chat with them and tell them what you're doing, like that's huge. You can talk to recruiters, connect on LinkedIn, and then when you get back home, go to school, reach back out to us and see what kind of jobs we have open. So really, it's all about this is what we're looking for. We want people to have passion, um, that are actually going out testing things, failing, figuring out why they failed, and then, you know, coming back. So this is huge. This is exactly the type of people we want to have um, come work for us. But one thing I wanted to talk about with you, TJ, is how a, a student competition is for students at every level. It's for universities at every level. Um, but in order to compete, be competitive, and win, it takes a little bit more than just the grit uh, and pure passion of uh, those that are doing the hard work. Some of these universities have like enormous budgets and stuff. And some other ones, the students did all the hard work to get funding and get sponsorships on their own. Um, and to see them all compete with a level playing field and all of them be competitive was really, really something to see. Yeah, you know, the whole competition, I think, really re revolves around like this attitude of iterative improvement where, uh, you know, my personal opinion is that for a brand new team that's never, ever done rocketry uh, to form as a group and spend the year and read the rules and, and do their research, uh, it's totally possible for them to go out there and be very competitive. Um, but winning that top prize is, it's a little bit of luck um, because, you know, we talked about like the first few seconds of launch uh, if things don't go perfectly, you could be off a huge margin. And it's not just money. The teams with the most people and the most money are by far not guaranteed to win. Um, and there's different categories. There's commercial off the shelf, which is rockets built entirely from purchased main components, rocket bodies, motors, uh, and various other things. And then uh, student research and de developed uh, SRAD rockets that have either custom uh, outer casings or custom motors that gets into uh, hybrid and liquid rockets as well and so in those categories that's where teams um, because building everything is gets very very expensive when you're doing custom fiberglass or custom carbon fiber 
that's where teams that have a lot of money are able to compete effectively. But for a team, you know, a team of very small people, uh, a team with a very small number of people and a very low budget, uh, if they execute their engineering very, very well, can totally be competitive. Now, uh, that's I definitely agree with you, Phil, that um, having such a mismatch of experience and money and resources compared to new teams is definitely a hard challenge to make that competitive. But IREC definitely puts in um, some mechanisms to kind of level the playing field a little bit. Um, but again, going back to the SOP, where you know, they pr provide bare minimum guidelines and they don't want to restrict innovation, they don't want to do things that would say, uh, you know, penal they don't want to penalize the teams with a lot of students, a lot of resources to kind of like lower the competing standard, right? But they also don't want to raise the competing standards so that new teams couldn't possibly win or, or compete. And so that's always a, a challenge for them. And it, it's really a, a delicate back and forth for the organizers and the teams of like how that balance plays out. So the first timers, the rookies that came out this year, they're, um, you know, they're going to come back next year with even more appetite to win. Uh, but also uh, that shared experience and, and lessons that they'll pass on uh, to the newcomers next year. Oh, yeah, totally. And you see that uh, iterative improvement with brand new teams where, like, you know, they, this is the first challenge they've put on themselves, and it's a really big challenge. And they met that head on, and they, they made it to the competition, and they flew. And you see that with big established teams. Uh, UCLA has two teams. They have uh, their seniors or uh, veteran members who have been to at least one IREC that they're building large liquid propelled rockets uh, and they test fly them multiple times per year. They have a very large program. Unfortunately, their rocket, uh, you know, with all the, the faculty mentorship and resources, uh, their rocket had a mishap before the competition, so they weren't able to appear. But their program does uh, a really interesting way of getting new members up to speed where they kind of throw them right into the fire. And so they have a separate team of all people new to the group. So this is anyone, no one with ex, uh, rocketry experience. So these are college freshmen or second or third years who have not been a part of the group. They get put into an entire team and with upperclassmen and faculty and corporate mentorship, uh, they basically have to build a rocket from scratch. And uh, to be fair to them, you know, they don't take uh, the easiest way out. They're building a, an, a SRAD hybrid rocket for themselves. But that team, you know, the, this was the, for some of them, the first engineering project they've ever done. And they're going to take that experience and then they're going to go to kind of the major leagues for UCLA and they're going to take that experience they had at IREC and the lessons they learned and the designs they tried out and apply it to uh, even bigger projects. And so it's every single team um, next year that are those here this year, if you know if they have the resources and the support to come back, is going to take all of that's learned, internalize that, pass it on to their new members, and come back even uh, in a stronger position. There's a couple other things I wanted to talk about with you, TJ, and that's what we heard about this second annual Spaceport America Cup compared to last year's first annual one. And we spoke to a lot of the organizers of this event at Ezra at Spaceport America. Um, I kept asking, you know, 
does that iterative improvement that we see from these students carry over to the organizers of this event? And overwhelmingly, the answer was yes. Um, so this year, they focused a lot on uh, safety, for one, um, making, you know, and safety for one. And uh, second, last year was their first go around, their first time trying it at this venue, trying it with this infrastructure, organizing everything that's going on. Um, and what I saw um, in Las Cruz in New Mexico this year, it was a very well organized event, in my opinion. Yeah, and there's like, you know, there's a couple of metrics uh, that you can kind of gauge organization. Uh, they managed to launch more student rockets this year than last year. Uh, but the anecdotes, right? We weren't there last year, but we talked to many people who were there before uh, returning teams, returning volunteers, returning staff members. And, you know, the iterative improvements don't just happen with, uh, you know, we'll give fancy safety backpacks to recovery teams. It is simple things from how, which, which lanes do we let cars drive on in the, the, around the campsite? Uh, we talked about the dirt road, uh, the dirt access road uh, from the south. Uh, that was uh, an issue and made it difficult for a lot of uh, competitors last year. And so Spaceport America decided to build a paved road uh, for dozens of miles so that uh, competitors could have a easier time getting to the site. Now, um, they didn't get it done uh, within time for this competition, but they were literally paving the final sections over that last week. That road got more paved um, from Saturday than it was on, on Tuesday. Uh, and so that's kind of an infrastructure improvement, right? Where you know they took that feedback and they're like, well, we have the resources and we have the will to uh, make this competition better. Let's hear from Dan Hicks, the CEO of Spaceport America. The Spaceport America Cup has grown since last year. What are some of the things you hope to do to make it better for next year? So I tell you, I love that question because when we had the first Spaceport America Cup in 2017, our partner Ezra was learning about Spaceport. Spaceport America was learning about Ezra, learning about this competition. And we had a wonderful competition, but we realized that there are certain traffic congestion points on our first competition. So this year, we really spent time with my staff and with Ezra leadership. And, and as you can see, we kind of laid it out, we spread it out, we put gravel in areas where there is just dirt. We have a, a lot more of a, uh, a focused uh, approach in logistics on ensuring that everybody has access not only to porta potties, but to first aid and medical. And, and our wonderful sponsors that have come have really made some nice experiences for the students. Everything from misting tents to shade to actually having uh, our Mountain View Regional Hospital come here and set up a, uh, a small uh, field clinic that's helping us, you know, we sure our students are hydrated and all the, you know, small cuts and bruises or trips and falls. I mean, all the students know that they're well taken care of. So we put in a lot of, of improvements of just last year to this year. And as we go forward, we'll have the same thing. We'll do an after-action review. What can we do better? Can we get the communications, the PA systems better? You know, just like you said, where we're standing, it's a little bit hard to hear. Well, we'll improve on that, and we'll make that better for next year. We've just got such a good partnership with Ezra, and bringing in the companies that are coming here to sponsor is just such a wonderful experience for them. But everybody will have that same mindset. How can I make this better for next year? So my job, you know, as a CEO of Spaceport America is so cool because I've got such a talented team, staff of my own, but I've got partners, partners, partners and sponsorships that are out there that really want to see how do we grow this? How do we keep it going even stronger? So that's a great place to be in.
Ezra's president, Matt Ellingold, also had a few things to say about how Ezra's been growing in the past few years. So you've had a long history with Ezra. Uh, how have you seen this event and organization evolve over that time period? A lot. It, it's grown exponentially. I'm standing here surrounded by three or four volunteers, and that's about a third of the folks that we have out here right now. And a couple of years ago, that would have been 100% of our workforce. And that was about as stressing as you can imagine to, imagine it to be. I used to start every single opening briefing with, there are three of us and 300 of you. <laughs> help us help you. And I still have that sentiment. This is a team effort between, between us and, and the student teams. We, we need to help each other make this a, a successful event. But I absolutely am starting to have the resources that I need to make this safe, sustainable, and, and secure, which is absolutely great. So obviously, uh, Spaceport America Cup is the, a highlight event for you and Spaceport America. Uh, for people who are interested in maybe joining Ezra or volunteering, uh, what other things does Ezra do throughout the year and how can they get involved? This is all we do. You know, we are an all-volunteer organization. Everyone here has a day job and we do all this in our free time and all this is quite a lot. This. It, it could very easily be another full-time job, just just facilitating this competition, doing all the legwork and advance work that has to happen throughout the year to lead up to this. And for people who want to get involved, is there a specific site they can go to? or uh, Yeah, you can go to soundingrocket.org, and there's a contact page on there, and reach out to us. We, we are all, always looking for new, highly motivated folks who want want to help make this possible for the students every year. I look forward to the day when I can find my replacement. Tons of things from even the rules, right? Uh, the 90-page SOP, they're always tweaking that because they have their own goals that they're trying to encourage students, right? Because the organizers are not there to be a like faceless wall that you present your rocket and then they tear it apart um, metaphorically and they give you back a score. Uh, they're there to t give you an opportunity to learn as a team, take on a huge challenge, and the judges are giving you feedback. Uh, and the score is just a one representation of that. And so with the rules, they're trying to provide that guidance so that uh, new teams can uh, uh, have an easier time competing. Old teams <clears throat> can be continually challenged. Um, even things, um, uh, every, pretty much every scored category uh, gets tweaked based on feedback from judges, how their experience was with judging with those rules, how student teams <clears throat> felt about the rules, uh, if they had read all of the rules. Uh, and so that kind of feedback uh, kind of builds upon itself. And, you know, Ezra's not a new organization, but, you know, they're constantly growing. They're getting more volunteers as part of the group. They're getting more teams competing. They are international now since 2011, so from other countries, not just you know Canada and Mexico, but teams from Europe, teams from South America, all coming to this uh, dusty town in New Mexico to you know demonstrate their passion for rocketry. So what's your name? I'm Surya. And uh, where are you from? India, Manipal is on the west coast of India. Yeah, this is our first Spaceport America Cup, university's first Spaceport America Cup. And uh, what would you say has been the biggest challenge in, with your team getting here today and launching? Uh, the biggest challenge is basically getting a lot of 
equipment and materials which are not available in India. So we have to import most of our stuff either from the US or China or other places. Mm. Is that difficult so or expensive? It's not difficult, it's expensive because the import duties are high and the time it takes to bring the stuff from the US or from China mm -hmm. into the country and then into our university takes a long time. So, you know, once we re realize we need something, it takes a long time before we actually get it in. Uh, what would you say you're most proud of when it comes to the work you've done on your rocket? I think the fact that, you know, we started off with absolutely no idea about what to do as such to build a rocket. To the fact that now two years down the line, we've already managed to get a rocket up in the air. And you're recovering it too. We're recovering it too, yeah. yeah. So, that's, I think that is itself a huge achievement, you know, considering just two years. Do you think you'll be back next year? Definitely, most certainly. Uh, maybe not us as such, but the team would be here without a doubt. You came here and did unexpected things happen on the way? Just one thing, we forgot to get a canopy. So this, <laughs> we're, we're under a canopy now, yeah. there's a tarp underneath you. And so we had to borrow one. Luckily one of, those, one of the teams had an extra one which they gave us. Oh wow. They said, okay, you can have it for the duration of the yeah, competition. You don't have any chairs or tables? Yeah, we weren't really, I mean, we weren't expecting this sort of a thing, you know, because we've never attended a similar sort of competition, so we had no idea what to expect. Mm -hmm. So we we focused more on the rocket and forgot about the this aspect of it. So, but now, again, next year, we're all prepared for it. My name is Gustavo, and I'm from ITER Rocket Design from Brazil. It's the eighth time we come to here. In the first time we came with just wow. two people. Since then, we came every year and we learn a lot of things here uh, with the competition and with the other universities. So what has been some of the biggest challenges you guys faced this year building this rocket? Okay. Our biggest challenge is our travel from Brazil to here because we we fly in the international plane and our rockets with our rockets uh, rocket and our rocket have to be sectioned. I don't know what to say because we have to came with bags, normal bags. You put bags. it in a suitcase? Yeah. <laughs> we <laughs> use a lot of suitcase to to bring here okay. him to here. Uh, what are you most proud of about your rocket? I don't know if I proud about the rocket, but I proud about my team because we we have a lot of work to do all the year and when we come here it's so difficult because I, our university is is not in vacations we are not in holidays so we have to came here work 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 with the rockets and come back uh, go back to brazil and work 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 to the university yeah, to make the tests and the final tests to yeah. the, of the semester yeah all the other teams here are on summer break. <laughs> yeah. Other classes are over, but not for you guys. No. I think uh, we should close out uh, this episode by talking about what teams will take away from this competition. It ended and everyone that competed there is back at home. They're back um, enjoying the rest of their summer before classes start again. Some of them graduated and there are going to be new team members, some old teams, some new teams next year. We, we talked to a lot of different teams about how they're going to share what they've learned and pass that knowledge on. My name's Anthony. I, we're Project Prometheus. Um, we're part of Rocket Project at UCLA, um, and we're in the 10K um, SRAD Student Research and Design category. It is a custom hybrid motor. 
with us, what we do is we have people who work on this project then move on and work on our liquid team. And so getting the hands-on like opportunity or the hands-on experience on the hybrid will help then apply that knowledge to the liquid and make the liquid team better. UCLA has been at IREC almost since the beginning. There's one or two people that have been at IREC before, but everyone here is it's their first year on the team. So at the point of this project was really to learn as much as possible for as many new people as possible. Oh, I'm Annalise. I am project manager and also nose cone lead. Um, I think the most exciting part is just that we all came in knowing nothing about rocketry and the fact that we're standing here with a rocket ready to fly in less than a year. A hybrid rocket ready yes. to fly. Yeah, that's, a, that's not a small thing. <laughs> yeah, So I think we've come a really long way. My name is Adrian. I'm from Oranos Polytechnique. We're from Montreal, Canada. Uh, we're quite an old team. I think we've been there for six or seven years. Uh, our okay, our first present, uh, presence at the competition was in 2011, if I remember correctly. Uh, and since then, we've won on 2012, 13 and 14. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and then we've continued participating at the competition, uh, launching uh, from one to three rockets a year. You yeah. have a lot of experience. We what do. are some of the major challenges that you face, um, especially this year? Even though you're experienced, what are still the main challenges okay. that you run into? Well, uh, knowledge transfer. Okay, well, since, since it's a student club, people stay in the club for four years and then they leave right. and knowledge goes away. So there's a huge effort that needs to be done in order to continue the knowledge to pass on. And when the knowledge is not passed on, mistakes repeat, are repeated. And some things that, for instance, yesterday we had trouble uh, separating a parachute that could have been avoided should we have uh, been infused with the knowledge of the, the previous pe people in the club. And how what do you... What are some of the active methods you do for that knowledge transfer? Okay, uh, well, this series is the main, the baseline of the knowledge transfer because it's it's hard to make a supersonic rocket. So we uh, we help people, uh, the, the young people that come in, uh, and during the whole year uh, we let them do some mistakes but not too much and we give them advice uh, we have uh, official courses like we have uh, powerpoints uh, that we show at every week and we improve upon and we we write we log everything that we've encountered what what needs to be uh, checked what what's the dangers stuff like that and i'm sure that documentation over there definitely comes into play yeah and documentation helps so much uh, and uh, well you know, it's hard to do documentation and sometimes people don't want to do documentation because they know themselves, but it's, it has a major impact in the end. Sure. Yeah. I'm Rocky Kimbrell. I'm uh, from Arizona State University. I'm with SEDS ASU Rocketry Division. I'm sure you learned a bunch of lessons here. Yes. You've got a lot of experience participating in this competition and launching rockets. How are you going to take that knowledge back? and bring it to the other members of your group and future competitions? Yes, so every every time we uh, compete in a competition and uh, we have any sort of issue or safety concerns and we go back home, we always write a document out detailing what happened and how it happened, what caused it, and then uh, write out fixes for those, you know, what, what we can do in the future to repair those. And we share that with our, with our members. And, and our members also go through uh, stage of competition. So they'll start in the US SEDS USRC competition that's in uh, November and that's building multi-stage rockets and then this competition which is you know in summer 
and uh, then we're going to add another competition here soon. Awesome. So we have this stepping process to get our members educated along the way for their experience. Uh, I would say that overall as a competition and the common theme that we got when talking to all these students was uh, one, this is for many of them the first big engineering project that they have started from the beginning and finished. Right in school, you're giving these tiny homework assignments that kind of relate to what you're doing. You might have a group project with another person or four people and you might have a semester or two, or if you're lucky, two semesters to work on something. Uh, but there's, with academic work, uh, it's usually very rigor rigorously defined. You know, the professor has kind of an idea of what they're, they're getting in response. And with IREC, with the, the SOP, they have guidelines and they expect a rocket to go up to a target altitude but they want you to have that freedom. They don't give you any, any plans. They don't tell you how many fins to have. They don't tell you how long it has to be. They say, here's your goal. Here are safety guidelines, and let's see what you come up with. And for, that, for a lot of students, that is a, a huge challenge. And so um, you know, that kind of teamwork uh, aspect is incredibly important, and that's experience that um, most students really don't get in, in school. Uh, people who are who do co-ops and internships have that opportunity, but even then, you don't usually spend a whole year co-oping at one company. But they're able to spend a whole year working on this project, and you know, if they uh, join as as underclassmen, they can spend multiple years and multiple iterations uh, building upon those skills and lessons. Right, and if they, you know, if a student's really interested in learning how to lay up carbon fiber or something. They can talk to their teams and get that experience fabricating uh, different parts. Um, students make their own PCBs and do all this other type of things. Um, you know, it's a practical way, project-focused way to actually get the experience that you want. And there are companies, space companies, sponsoring this event. I heard from one organizer that um, uh, one company spoke to him and said they already identified 30 different students that they wanted to hire. So yeah, I mean, it can be a fun way to do something. It can be a milestone in a student's calendar, but in the broad scope of things, whether they know it or not, this type of engineering is not easy. And if you can do it, and if you, you know, put in the effort, put in the time to learn, even the, the small subsystem components, you know, like you become a better engineer for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, my, my three takeaways, uh, Phil and I have talked about these at length, uh, number one is that no matter what the challenge is, uh, if you're dedicated and motivated enough, uh, you can find a way. My name's Philip, so pleasure to meet you, you Phil. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, we're New Mexico State University, so we're actually the, the local team. team. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this is actually going to be our first year ever competing. So last year I interned with Virgin Galactic and had the fortune of actually spectating the event, and it was just overwhelming, you know, so exciting. And I'm sorry, I wasn't even competing. So uh, we kind of got the ball rolling, got our own team started here at New Mexico State, and given that uh, we were such a new team and we didn't really know how to build rockets yet. Uh, the main focus of our uh, year's team was kind of uh, learning from the NAR themselves, uh, National Association of Rocketry. 
So uh, we got a vast majority of our members level one certified, and then we moved on to level two, and then uh, we had two of our members move on to level three. Now that's where we're building the big rockets. So that's a, basically a license or a certification yeah. for launching hobby rockets? Yeah, exactly. It's a license essentially to a specific motor class. All of these rockets would be level three. So we used those launches as an opportunity to test out what we wanted to build for competition, kind of see what it was, and how they launched. Uh, we had smaller motors for those, so they only went up to like 4,000, 6,000 feet. And then we modified our rocket, got a larger uh, motor. Right now, based on our last launch, our rocket's looking like it's gonna fly up to about 11,000 to 12,000 feet, a little over the 10,000 mark. But given, like, we felt like it was a success, and our team's goal, our main goal, given that we're so new, is kind of just to get on the scoreboard, show that we're a capable team, and then hopefully, in the years to come, get more funding and uh, go on to more ambitious things. The process going from a blank, blank page, basically, it's just you and your friends meeting in a room to having built a full rocket out in the deserts of New Mexico is a tough journey. Um, but you know, the stories and the people we talk to is that the, for some teams, when once they decided to take on this challenge, they put in a ton of the work and they found. Uh, solutions to technical problems with their engineering skills. They've found solutions to financial or um, bureaucracy problems with their schools and their sponsors. And they also had to deal with interpersonal problems, how to deal with each other and how to be an effective team because one person could not compete in this competition. Uh, Rocky Cambrell, I'm the Director of Operations for SEDS ASU Rocketry Division. So last November, we, uh, we won uh, our, our very first competition, our very first rocket we built. We only had six members and uh, we actually won second place and it was multi-stage competition. So we, we decided after that that we'd want to step into the uh, Spaceport America Cup. Being that we're located in Phoenix, we're just down the road. Right. And so this seemed the most logical competition to try and get into and develop our understanding, our skill set towards, towards that next step. The first challenge was uh, funding. We needed to find funding because this is about a $25,000 rocket wow. that we have manufactured. And we ended up finding that funding through these three sponsors. Uh, Keen Engineering, uh, this is the current entrepreneurial engineering network. Uh, Luff Logistics, they're our international sponsor. They're from Brazil, they're a logistics company. And Fetra, they're a uh, Phoenix Tempe local startup uh, doing marketing. So they gave us the funding that we needed to buy the materials and supplies and actually get us all the way out here and, uh, so that we're able to even participate. One of the next challenges is along the way there's always these design flaws that you, it looks good on paper, but as you're starting to put things together, they don't always pan out the right way. Maybe something's a little too large, maybe something's a little too heavy. So you always have to kind of step back and uh, really look at what your design is and uh, how how you need to manipulate that to fit it. And then you also have member participation. Like um, like I said, we started with six members. Now we're up to about 68 members wow. in uh, under a year and a half. And so we wanted to keep, build these projects and have these things and educate our members on the topics that we already knew. Uh, so that they were actively involved and felt like they, they had a part in this just as much as we did. Some of the challenges of starting with a team of six and embarking on an ambition project like this and then scoping up to 60 people. How do you 
bring them in at different times and give them useful work to do. And different skill levels as well, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, very different skill levels. Um, so whenever I jumped in, there was only three of us. I knew nothing about rocketry, period. And we literally put every bit of time we had into that project to make it work. And so the six of us, after winning that, I also had won a uh, the SEDS USA Jeff Bezos Award for Chapter Leadership. Congratulations. And Yeah, thank you. And so we started reaching out a lot to um, educate the public. Like we do, we do a lot of public outreach. And so in that, we ended up being featured by Star, Star Talk Radio and uh, a lot of the various um, news outlets in, in the local Phoenix area and uh, getting a bigger online presence. And so along with that comes the Facebook attention and stuff like that of students that are at ASU. Uh, getting our name out there, people started becoming more involved in seeing us doing things and wanting to be a part of that. Coming back to the uh, skill levels, so being that we started at that one competition, the SEDS USA University Student Rocketry Competition, uh, we're able to put our new members into that competition, having them design and develop their own rocket at the same skill level that we were at whenever we started and embarked on our journey and then able to once they finish that rocket they're able to come over to this competition and so this is kind of our stepping process for our organization to keep our members involved and engaged and you know it, it takes a team working together and being able to support each other but also specialize on different things and so that's uh, the first thing I, I take away the second is no matter what the team set out to do during the competition, the teams that were the most successful executed the best. Where when a team decided, okay, well, we're brand new, we're gonna compete in a COTS class, commercial off the shelf, so we're gonna buy our motor, we're gonna buy our rocket tube, we're gonna buy our nose cone, buy our parachute, but like, we're going to design, design the shape, design the profile, figure out the motor, we're gonna test it really, really well, and we're gonna come in with you know, some of the most accurate simulations out of any team, and then we're gonna launch it. You know, that is just as valuable as the team that does the full custom carbon fiber and special fins, and they build their own rocket motor. Uh, and the judges definitely take that into account. There's uh, individual awards for engineering process, how well they took the problem, broke it down, and came up with solutions. Uh, there's just, uh, you know, technical excellence of taking a, sp a specific subsystem, right? The team that built the best fins or the team that built the best nose cone or any of that, that gets recognized by the judges. And the third thing uh, is, you know, it's, it's not just about that, that team at that moment. Um, you know, we heard lots of stories of teams that, you know, started out with, you know, the three or four people who are like, I'm really passionate about space and rocketry and engineering. I want to do this competition. Uh, but it was not just those four people working together and building the rocket. And then it was like, great, we did that. We're done. Let's go home and never do this again. It's like, great, we learned so much. And we've built a team around us now, right? Uh, and, and they're getting other people excited. And part of that is, well, how do we, you know, now that we have, do we've done this one step, what's the next step? And how do we set up, uh, the next generation or the next group of people to be successful and for a lot of them who are seniors, right? This is their their last big event. This happens after most schools are out of 
or out of session, this is the last event of their career. Um, and then, you know, they're obviously trying to get exposure to recruiters. They're trying to, you know, show off their technical skills. But a huge part of that is like, well, how do I make sure the next, the next year's team is successful, even though I'm not a part of that? Uh, or even if uh, you're, you know, you're a freshman who's on a very large team, there might be 150 people on your team, but you're a freshman. How did, how did I contribute and how can I, I take those lessons learned and move those on? And so I think those are the, uh, the, three, thing, the three biggest things I took away that really impacted me um, because it's, it's not just a, like, for me, uh, I would not say a lesson of like, oh, I should machine this part in this way. Uh, is that valuable? Uh, I think that's a cool thing to know and that might be helpful uh, in the future for a team when they take on the same challenge. But I don't think that's a, a main lesson. Um, the, you know, the spirit and the enthusiasm and the attitude uh, are the biggest things that I, I take away and I think the teams that we talked to who are the, the most excited and the most well-prepared all had those thing, three things. Yeah, I only have uh, two other things to add. I agree with you on all points. Um... Uh, I did want to say that that last thing you mentioned, um, taking away the bigger picture, the bigger lessons here. After we left, um, you know, with great tans and a few sunburns, uh, I think the dust is stained into my Specscast shirts. One of the big things I took away personally was I was very inspired to go back and, and do exactly that. To I was inspired as an alumni of my university to go back and, and share however I could. Um, with the, the people I know that are still in school. And I think people listening to this podcast um, will be inspired as well um, to, you know, contribute whatever they can um, to people that are rising up in their own professions or um, contributing to society and at their, the very start of their careers. Uh, here, for example, has been rocket engineering. And seeing these students, these brilliant students, come and work together just gives me hope for humanity basically <laughs> and say like this is a very small part there's only 120 teams here there are way more than 120 universities in the world and uh you know i i just came away feeling feeling good you know <laughs> yeah um, i i i definitely felt the same way and like i think uh the biggest impact that it had on me was it removed kind of my own self-doubt about engineering projects right because when you you know think about engineering projects whether it's you know something you're a part of or something you want to plan or a team project you know you start doing not even risk analysis you just start to do like feasibility feasibility analysis it's like well like well what do i know and what do, like what do i need to know to do this and how much money do i need and all this kind of stuff there's you start thinking about all these like roadblocks right and, you know, it's totally valid to think of the roadblocks and, and to know the roadblocks so that you can overcome them. But I think mentally, a lot of people are like, they count the roadblocks and it's like, oh, that's, that's too many. That's impossible. It's not worth trying. Or if we try, we're going to fail. And I think for some things, I kind of had that attitude of like, oh, well, I looked at it. Like, uh, I think I, there's engineering projects uh, that... Now I would think, it's like, yeah, we totally could have done that, right? Uh, that back in school, it's like, no, we totally could have done that. Like, all it takes is, 
you know, um, if you have the, the will and the people who are enthusiastic, there are ways to enable that, to make that, that happen. And whether you have like very large roadblocks, like, uh, you know, not the most, uh, not the most advantageous, uh, I don't want to get into that, but <clears throat> no matter how big the roadblocks look, uh, there are ways to get over them. Um, and all the teams there hit those roadblocks and a lot of the same roadblocks and found ways around them. And I would say to any uh, student who's thinking about uh, thinking about space and wants to do something in space, if your school doesn't have a rocketry club or doesn't have a team competing in IREC, you know, I'm, I guarantee you there's people at your school that share the same passion. And if you find a way to connect with them, uh, you'll, you know, if you're passionate enough and you want it enough, you can form that team and, and be there at IREC 2019 uh, and compete and, you know, learn all these lessons in person. It only takes one faculty advisor to really make that happen. I'm from Iowa State. Uh, I'm Nick. Uh, I did NDE for the Rocket. We started eight months ago with no funding, no team. The university didn't want to support us. They didn't want us. They disowned us. And eight months, we... Uh, have a 15-foot-tall rocket 1,500 miles away from home with uh, nine of some really good friends and really smart people, and, you know, we're 100 yards from the pad, and we're, we're ready. We can do it. Do you have advice for somebody else that uh, might be at a university that's not giving them much support? Keep pushing. Keep asking. Uh, we asked over 30, 40 professors to sponsor us, and it just took one. It took one person to believe in us and one person to, uh, you know, give us the support we needed. Uh, my name is Hans Teilman. I'm from Texas Tech um, University. Um, what did you launch today? We didn't. Okay, so so why are you here? So basically why I'm here is that Texas Tech, we don't have an aerospace program. This is I crazy. So, so you don't have a rocket. No. You're the only one. Yeah. You just happened to meet nearby and you drove up from Texas. Are yeah. you from Texas? Yeah, I was in Lubbock, Texas. I just drove here to just because I know there's so many teams and I, man, the community. Have, what have you learned so far? I mean, I learned a lot about funding. Funding is probably the, the biggest problem yeah. for most teams. Um, uh, different ways to uh, crowdfund and um, people to go to. Um, I've learned a lot about the, the different engine designs are the stuff that's really, really cool. What are you, what are you going to bring back to your team um, at Texas Tech? Well, I mean, number one, I want to bring back, for me, I'm like trying to keep staying passionate. It's hard. This is a hard road. I'm starting from nothing with no funding, just trying to get people excited, get people working. Um, stay passionate, learning little things like, oh, put a zip tie here. Oh, this didn't work because this cheered and we didn't think about it before, you know? A lot of teams here are like mostly upperclassmen, like they have to teach the younger people yeah. that are coming in. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of different ways of doing that. You're out here by yourself, you're learning a lot, yeah. um, even if you're not competing. Mm -hmm. um, but do you have ideas on how to effectively transfer that knowledge to um, other people? So, I mean, since we have only done this for a year, we went from Hobby Lobby Rockets yeah. to here, we all learned just we just pedaled the metal just tried to learn it yeah um the next year coming up some of the actually underclassmen showed like more effort than some of the upperclassmen and so they're actually going to be one of them's going to be team lead wow yeah and so he's uh he's going to be a sophomore so people like that who's just have been exposed and done the stuff i mean a lot of the stuff that i'm trying to do because i've been to two competitions alone now just trying to learn as is i just tell tips i'm like i just write stuff down and i or i I just have a list of things to go through. I'll call immediately after I leave. I'm like, list of things. Like, 
help me remember this, and then we'll talk about it more as the competition goes on. But I think, too, it's a lot of it's learning. I mean, a lot of, I don't know how it was for you, but, like, you just kind of had to do it at one point. Like, there's good, having mentors are great, and having teachers, but you had to do it. And then having that mentor, could all, oh, put a zip tie there, because I learned from that other group. <laughs> put that zip tie, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. Like, little tips and stuff as you're yeah. going, but it's going to be a lot of trial and error yeah. at this point. I have one final comment to say about Spaceport America Cup for this episode. I still want to talk about other teams and, and share some of those stories and specifics later on. Um, including RIT's own adventure through Spaceport America Cup. Uh, but the last thing I do want to say is, is thank you to all the um, organizers of this event, to Ezra, uh, to Spaceport America, um, and to everyone that spoke with us, from spectators to parents to the students themselves. And I wasn't really sure what to expect going in, um, but I had you know, the, the most fun I've had in years in those uh, six days out in the desert. And I think the folks at Spaceport America had a lot of fun too. Chris Lopez, I'm the uh, uh, VP of Site Operations here at uh, Spaceport America. Uh, I, I tell you what, I can't be more impressed with, with the students and the Rocketeers, the competitors, the volunteers, the community. I mean, it, I think it's been extremely impressive how a community, including you know, the back in Crucis and TRC and the Rocketeers, everybody has just come together to host such a wonderful event. The innovation, the ideas that came up, the quality of rockets that have come out here. I tell you what, students, you wanna challenge yourselves, rocketeers, you wanna challenge yourselves, come out here. Let's, let, let's let the best of the best, the brains of the brains, and let, let's see how we perform. And I tell you what, companies out there, Boeing, Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic, SpaceX, uh, uh, Exos, Up Aerospace, ULA, Northrop Grumman, Guys, if you want to pick out and see the, how these teams are performing, uh, both technically and in leading their teams and working within their teams, you, you got to come here because you're going to see just a huge microcosm of a pressure-filled environment in, in tough situations and see how teams rise to the occasion. It's, it's really a privilege to be here next to these students, and they entrust us with this last year and a half of work, and I felt like that always. But I just got reminded of that again when I look back of how, every, you know, the joy and, and the joy of success and also, unfortunately, the, the sorrow. But one common theme is being those, those teams that have stumbled a little bit or they didn't perform quite as well, every single one of them has made it clear, hey, Chris, we're going to see you next year. Yeah. And really, that's what it's about. That's what this industry is about. It's not easy. And uh, just impressed with, with just the determination and the spirit of how they, how they attack, the, how they attack their, their engineering challenges. It's been remarkable, yeah. amazing. And I tell you what, public, if you're listening to this, I encourage you, come out earlier. Come out sooner rather than later. Um, you know, come out for those launches on Thursdays and Fridays. Come out early in the morning. You will definitely be impressed. We were launching rockets, and we were launching rockets with essentially candles as a fuel that these engineers figured out. Those paraffin rockets, unbelievable. Those potassium uh, rockets, that's sugar rockets, folks, if you don't know what I'm talking about. Unbelievable. Who knows? Who knew that you can just get the high energy systems and the performance out of there? We saw air brakes this year, you know, while the rocket was still in flight. So the innovations are just amazing. The payloads are, are incredible. Uh, it, I'm jazzed to see what these, what we come up with next year and, and how we continue to grow this. Yeah, uh, we were out in the New Mexico for over a week. Uh, we talked. We were staying with and talked extensively with the RIT team, uh, all the way from there. The the day before. 
uh, conference day to the day after the award ceremony uh, and all of the trials and tribulations that they encountered. But we also, uh, starting on poster day, went out and talked to as many teams as we could to get their perspective and their story. Uh, and so we have literally days of audio recorded from all of them. And uh, while this episode was generally about IREC and our experiences and our takeaways and, and how that competition panned out, uh, we'll have a episode specifically on the RIT story uh, of their uh, their journey, but also we want to have all of the audio uh, from the student teams we talked to published. So we'll have an episode that kind of uh, shows their journeys intertwined of from conference day to safety checks to their launch attempts that might not have worked to their uh, recoveries and all their all their all those moments, um, so that one uh, the people that participate on those teams can have something to to remind them of this awesome experience they had, but also for people who are students uh, or soon to be students that are interested in competing next year. Uh, also for potential spectators, uh, launch days are open to the public. Um, so anyone who's in the, the New Mexico area or would like to do a nice road trip can go and, and watch these rockets take off uh, at once and kind of see the, the end result of all this engineering. And also to kind of, you know, save this pot for posterity because, you know, I think almost every team we talked to said, like, this was one of the most exciting moments of their, their school career or their lives so far. Uh, and some of those people are lucky enough to have a chance to go back next year. Some of those have graduated. And uh, we hope we can uh, provide something that um, lets you reflect on that and what that experience taught you. Um, and hopefully encourage you to, uh, if you have the chance to go back again, do even better and do even cooler things uh, or to kind of uh, act as a memory as you go out to the, the industry, hopefully the space industry, and take those engineering skills and apply them to pushing humanity farther out into space. And that wraps up this episode of SpexCast. Thanks for listening. Congratulations to McGill University, who took home first place for IREC at the second annual Spaceport America Cup. Full scoring is available at soundingrocket.org. If you would like to get involved with Ezra or your nearest amateur rocketry group, check out our blog post for this episode at blog.specscast.com. At the blog, we also have links to all the university rocketry teams that we spoke to at the event and some more information about Spaceport America Cup. To make sure you get future episodes of SpexCast, including a deep dive into the rockets and journeys of individual teams, subscribe to the show with your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode and others. Send your email to specscast at gmail.com or tweet to us at RITSpecs. Special thanks to Dan Hicks, Karen Barker, Chris Lopez, Susan Raitt, and Rosa Bonuelos of Spaceport America. Matt Ellingold, Dustin Kohler, and Randy Morick from the Experimental Sounding Rocket Association, Paul Stewart of Space Dynamics Lab, George Whiteside of Virgin Galactic, Lowell Hart of Tripoli Central California High Power Rocket Club, Christy of Virgin Orbit, Nicholas Fletcher and the Ohio State University team, Colin Ashland, Chris Sawyer, Nick Keesling and the Colorado State University team, Ricardo Herrera and the North Seattle Community College team, Ozzy Castillo and the RIT Launch Initiative and RIT Space Exploration teams, Lou and the EPFL Switzerland team, Surya and the India Manipal team, 
Gustavo and the ITA Rocket Team, Anthony, Annalise, and the UCLA Rocket Project Team, Adrian and the Ornos Polytechnique Team, Rocky Kim Rell and the ASU SEDS Rocketry Division, Nick and the Iowa State Team, and Hans Teilman of the Raider Aerospace Society. To every member of every rocketry team we spoke to, all the spectators and parents and guides we met at Spaceport America, you made this episode possible. Thank you. Our music is by Nelson Scott. When did David Bowie become the official soundtrack of space? What happened to my my precious Blue Danube? Are we not doing classical waltz? I feel hurt. We just... We completely abandoned the classical root of space for all this uh, hip-hop, jazz, wingo, 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 I don't know what to call it. What? It's not a genre. It's fine. Should should we tell him?